Hi and welcome back to the Smart Power Podcast with Akash Shriram and Tal. This is the second uh, part of our Indo-Pak standoff podcast. Let's just jump into it, shall we, Tal? Yes, let's go ahead. I have one question for you, and with that question comes four factors that plays into your answer to that question. It's, it's like a game show of sorts now. <laughs> So, who do you uh, think won at the moment? Whose victory do you think it was from a diplomatic perspective? Considering four factors. Uh, and this is not isolated to the events of this week, the week of the 25th of uh, February. This is looking at the bigger picture. So, the four factors are that uh, Pakistan boycotted the Organization of Islamic Cooperation Summit in Abu Dhabi when Indian Foreign Affairs Minister Sushma Swaraj was invited to the summit as a guest of honor. She gave a strong speech hinting at state-sponsored terrorism by Pakistan. That's the first factor. Mm-hmm. The second factor is uh, the response from most countries has been the same. Uh, we call for dialogue and both countries to exercise restraint. That, that's that's the same phraseology or similar phraseology that has been used in multiple statements by foreign leaders. No one is justifying or condemning the airstrike or the dogfight the day after or, or the cross-border shelling, except except the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. They, they did uh, condemn the airspace violation. The third factor is that uh, China has blocked the proposals to list uh, Jaish e Mohammed leader uh, Maulana Masood Azhar as a UN designated global terrorist. And this uh, veto has happened thrice that's 2009, 2016, and most recently 2017. China is a strong ally of Pakistan, on, and as many other news anchors and research analysts call China a quote unquote all weather ally of Pakistan. Uh, there are no signs of uh, China allowing the listing to happen this time around, at least not explicitly. The fourth uh, factor is the quote-unquote peace gesture of releasing the wing commander uh, Vartaman, the pilot of the Indian Air Force, much quicker than they had to and the propaganda videos that ensued. That may or may not have uh, been made under duress and put out for the world to see, but for sure, that played an important role, as you mentioned in the previous uh, part of this episode. Yeah. So I pose my question again. Who seems to have the diplomatic victory at the moment, looking at the larger picture? Well, due to Pakistan boycotting the Organization of Islamic Cooperation at Abu Dhabi, it was actually, I would say, um, a setback for Pakistan in order and a win for Sushma Swaraj of India because she came and she projected her strength and she showed up, right? Unlike Pakistan boycotting, which kind of initially projected them as someone, something to hide, right? But Again, that was their call. But end of the day, by releasing Wing Commander Vartman, in Pakistan actually had an upper hand or came out as diplomatically um, 
de-escalating the conflict. As for the blocking of proposals to list Masood Azhar, Pakistan actually benefits from China's involvement and China can act as a protectorate for Pakistani interests, right? And as me and Akash were discussing off air earlier, that mil- certain military certain militaries cooperatively use certain insurgency groups to advantage their um, opaque uh, strategic strategic yeah. exactly strategic mm-hmm. narratives, right? So China blocking uh, proposals to list Masood Azhar within the UN is strategically in Pakistan's favor. I mean, every if you look at the UN Security Council, I mean, for years now, Russia has vetoed any uh, resolutions against Syria because Syria and Russia are are close allies and any resolution that has come out against Israel, the U.S. has vetoed them. So, I mean, it's not to say that obviously there is an issue within the Security Council and the operations of the Security Council where it's like how Americans always say that they're against Congress because nothing gets done because of the competing interests within the global politics. Just to clarify for the Indian listeners, when Al says Congress, she means the American Parliament. Parliament. Yeah, so... Yep. Sorry, I am of Indian diaspora, so. <laughs> and um, as for as for your fourth point, the peace gesture gesture from the Pakistani side releasing uh, Wing Commander Vertman was actually um, in Pakistan's favor because they also used uh, media to propagate their side of the story. For those who have seen um, the video that was issued by uh, Wing Commander Vartaman saying that Pakistani army were very conscious of uh, supporting him where they took him in for first aid and took him to the hospital. I mean... And and fantastic deeds. Yes, exactly. Um, that was that was their propaganda tool, right? If India media used their narrative, Pakistan did the same thing. True. All right. So um, I I think we can probably answer the question by uh, saying that. It's too early to say uh, whose diplomatic victory it is because there are a lot of factors in play and these factors are extremely dynamic and every day as every day passes, the dynamic changes mm-hmm. in, in these factors. So uh, at the moment, it's really hard to say whose diplomatic victory it is. I and think yeah. only history books will tell in a couple of years. <laughs> True. True. While we're talking about the international perspective of this, China and all those things, uh, we must keep in mind that uh, this retaliation, uh, which what I think is retaliation, but what uh, Vijay Gokhale, the foreign secretary in India, has said is preemptive non-military strikes. Uh, this strike, this airstrike, has set a precedent. This precedent is because, you know, whenever uh, there was a terrorist attack before, the 26-11, the uh, Pathan court attacks in 2016, or the 2001 uh, Indian parliamentary attacks by 
again the same group Jaisi Muhammad India never retaliated by conducting airstrikes so this kind of sets a precedent most importantly because this is the first time ever that a nuclear power violated the airspace of another nuclear power and conducted an operation using air power this sets a precedent as i said and shows that uh there is room for conventional weapons as well because these the bombs that were used or allegedly were used were non nuclear weapons were non nuclear bombs the fact that two nuclear countries are escalating a series of events uh, scares the international community because yes. it could uh, lead to nuclear, nuclear warfare yes it's very scary this is why you had international world leaders from all specs to uh, condone not just condoning these violations but um expressing the need for mediation i mean um donald trump for example when he was in hanoi vietnam with uh, um kim jong un right now he had a moment where he commented on the deescalation and the need for mediation the uh, canadian prime minister justin trudeau said the same thing and uh, it was even mentioned by theresa may in parliament uh, during the whole brexit crisis to to try to deescalate this conflict as much as possible because the fear is yes it is such an up, up, unprecedented because prior to this the only two other countries that have been in cold war conflict as you can say as well as nuclear powers has been the US and Russia and to have two but the only thing that separated them was say two continents right and a body of water but it is more dangerous uh for two nuclear powers such as india and pakistan to go to war because they are right beside each other and the calamities would be extensive true uh speaking of russia all other international leaders you know sent out a public statement or used back channel communications that is they spoke to diplomats in their countries the ambassador in their countries and things of the sort but interestingly vladimir putin president of russia called prime minister modi and spoke to him and there's a readout of that uh phone call on uh the ministry of external affairs website and and he offered to mediate and that uh that seems to be an interesting uh point for me but just the fact that this direct communication between the heads of state shows that uh Russia is much more interested in mediating. Well, yes, if you ever read um Russia's stance on Euro-Asianism, um Russia is in a very unique position. Russia declares itself both European as well as Asian, right? And right now geo if you look at the geopolitics of it there are rising powers three major rising powers the reemergence of russia the rise of china and the rise of india right so russia and china specifically have more of an incentive to mediate between india and pakistan due to the geopolitical interests of all these diverse countries so vladimir putin and and in narendra modi it's known they have a relationship right? yeah india and india and russia have historically shared a relationship yeah. even even during the times of the non alignment movement. movement well the cold war every time 
Pakistan and India went to war, the stance was indirect use of power. Uh, the U.S. historically has supported Pakistan, where Russia has historically supported India. True. And that, I think so, that is a good coverage of what's happening in the international level. So, Akash, it's understandable to first talk about the overall conflict, but in order to get to the meat of the situation, we need to understand the Kashmiri issue. There's no way alleviating the situation without talking about the the issues on the ground. So what do you think the flashpoint uh, of the crisis was? Uh, in Kashmir. Don't you think it's obvious? I think it is the Pulwama attack. That was the um, flashpoint that created this newly energized conflict, this newly energized standoff. Uh, the I'm, I'm not saying the ties between India and Pakistan were close uh, before the Pulwama attack. I'm just saying that this conflict seems to be uh, pretty energized after the Pulwama attack. So Adil Dar, uh, who was the suicide bomber behind the Pulwama attack, was reported to be a 19-year-old Kashmiri person. He was reported to have faced the atrocities of the army and the heavy-handedness of the government in dealing with the Kashmir insurgency. He seems to have been radicalized by JEM, Jaish e Mohammed. There are uh, allegedly a lot of human rights violations in Kashmir. The thing is, there are so many events and things that India and Pakistan claim to be happening or not happening in Kashmir. And the fact of the matter is, none of these claims can be verified unless you're on the spot and uh, on the ground in Kashmir and talk to those people. We are sitting here over 3,000 miles away and we're talking about this issue from a fairly safe uh, place. But again, uh, there are so many details uh, that nobody knows. Nobody can understand the full picture until they're on the ground. So this seems to be one of the major problems uh, behind any sort of solution in Kashmir, isn't it? If, if there has to be a long-term solution uh, to the Kashmir insurgency, people must know the full picture. But wouldn't you say that with every action, there's a reaction? I mean, we've been hearing for years the human rights violation in Kashmir, and people are constantly, over few years, there's always an uprising or, or fear of insurgency that rises every few years. I mean, it is safe to say that there is a conflict within Kashmir. There is a problem. So wouldn't you think that the Indian government needs to support the Kashmiri people instead of applying heavy-handed uh, human rights violations? True. The tactics that the government of India ha has used over time uh, to integrate the Kashmiri community into India has sometimes backfired. So there is this quota in educational institutions uh, in other parts of India where they are, this, and this quota is for Kashmiri students. But we see the same Kashmiri students being harassed and abused after the, such, a, such a huge conflict happens. Yes. So uh, the fact of the matter is the integration strategies that were used to make Kashmiri people feel one with the Indian people seems to be backfiring. 
This is just one of the few strategies that was used. Number two, this person who's reported to be 19 years old was possibly born after the 1999 Kargil War. This Kargil War was uh, one turning point for the Kashmiri conflict, for the Kashmiri insurgents. Fact of the matter is that this was a reaction to the heavy-handedness of Indian government authorities mm -hmm. in Kashmir. And this person who's just 19 years old, reported to be 19 years old, has not seen the worst of it before 1999, before the Kargil War, has not seen the Kargil War, has not experienced, most likely has not experienced the Kargil War, which was possibly the toughest situation in recent times for Kashmiri people. And despite not seeing the toughest times, if it evokes such a reaction, in, a, in, in this person uh, to attack uh, so many uh, soldiers, so many paramilitary troops, I think that reaction comes from a place of sorrow and grief that the person yes. must have faced. Not just sorrow and grief, I would say anger and sorrow and grief that the person must have faced. I'm sure we cannot, one cannot talk about this issue without offending some or the other or without leaving some details. And there's a good possibility that we have left out some crucial facts in this discussion, but I'm sure it happened inadvertently. This matter, the entire Kashmiri conflict, this insurgency is a very nuanced matter. and We have to talk about it in a very nuanced fashion. And I think it's kind of out of our reach, out of our specialization right now, isn't yeah, it? I would agree, yes. we spoke about understanding the full picture yes. uh, understanding the facts and claims and uh, sorting out the opinions from what is actually happening on the ground and the data one gets from any source cannot be trusted or is uh, simply unverifiable because of the uh, information asymmetry that exists the government knows something the media knows something and the public knows something uh, and we, as analysts and researchers of this matter, we stand in a slightly uh, separate vertical. We know a few uh, a few things from everywhere. everywhere. Uh, that's possibly because of our education in, in these matters. And my problem is this information asymmetry. My problem is the conflicting narratives that exists uh, between the Pakistani media, the Pakistani government, the Indian media, the Indian government and the people living on the ground in Kashmir and other parts. So which narrative do you believe? Which fact do you believe? This information asymmetry that we see is, is not localized or is not unique to India and Kashmir and Pakistan. We see this also happening in other parts of the world, the Yemen conflict, for example, the body counts. We, nobody knows how many people have actually died because it's very hard to gather such information. There's an all out war, a civil war happening with a lot of uh, foreign powers having uh, interest in, in the Yemen situation. We really don't know the fact of the matter on the ground, right? You're very right, Akash. Um, what I personally do is in the morning, I try to read as much as I can from different, different news broadcasts from BBC to CNN to Al Jazeera and even Euronews and The Guardian and whatever they say on the topic, the truth is somewhere in the middle. 
So you can, I would just suggest for people to avoid social media and just (laughs) use the news. And end of the day, just use your common sense and read between the lines and read. uh, So if you read between the lines, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And people need to be more conscious of their, of what's being fed to them by media, by government and by opposition. True. Uh, We have spoken about the media earlier, and uh, I think people have to be much more conscious about what they consume, the news that they consume, the news anchors, and they have to be much more conscious of that. Definitely. So, actually, a few hours ago, I uh, read an article by uh, an open source analyst and researcher called, uh, his name is Nathan Rooser. He works at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He put out what I consider a brilliant piece of analysis. He's an independent researcher and has no vested interest in the conflict. His analysis came after he studied some open source satellite imagery of the area that India claimed to have eliminated or attacked. He concluded that the bombs that were uh, released missed the intended target by 150-200 meters and a possible cause could be an error in the targeting process. However, there was some conflicting reportage from the Indian media several hours ago that uh, four buildings in the targeted area were hit Uh, based on evidence released by authorities this time. This evidence, they claim, comes from a synthetic aperture radar, which is supposed to be much more accurate than a 2D satellite image that uh, Nathan Russo studied. My problem is this very conflict of data and the conflict of narratives. You have one person who's independent, but who has studied uh, a 2D satellite image. And on the other hand, you have the authorities who have released evidence from a much more capable source, which is the synthetic aperture radar. So again, what do you do in such a situation of conflicting narratives? In my view, Akash, I at this point, it's hard to trust anyone's claim, whether they, the Indian authorities, they're going to claim victory for their own purposes and interests. So the people are riled up and support their national governments and their national authorities, right? But right now, I think my best bet would be to trust Nathan Roser more because if he's the expert and he analyzes as an independent researcher, I honestly would trust his opinion more. Because the government of India has an invested interest in projecting their success to the population. And again, let's not forget, elections are coming up in a few months. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great note to end on. Um, if anybody is interested in Nathan Rusa and his image, I just suggest Googling Nathan Rusa. He has a very interesting backstory. Uh, you should read up on Nathan Rusa. And that is a great segue to the end of this episode, this two-part episode of the Indo-Pak conflict. It's, it's been so nice to just talk to another analyst, another researcher, 
about uh, the Indo-Pak conflict. It's been a, it's been pretty cathartic for me. Huh? Well, thank you. Um, for me, it was it's been very interesting the past few um, days just studying this and reading different uh, uh, news agencies and their perspectives, and especially for, uh, from a person of Indian diaspora and an Indo-Canadian living in the United Kingdom at this point, um, just to see how things, studying international relations, just seeing how scary this um, conflict can be and con can get. I, I know for a fact a lot of people that in Canada specifically, Indians and Pakistanis that live side by side as brothers and sisters, they're they're sweating right now. They're they're in real um, distress just hanging on to their TV screens to see what's happening and what's going on, especially the concern of their families back home in India. And uh, I mean, if you've also read anything, thousands of flights got uh, cancelled and delayed because people, and especially our elderly or, or just family members that are already in India and Pakistan or were traveling to India and Pakistan during their uh, seasonal winter um, relief from Canada in general are stuck in India and Pakistan, which is not fair. And again, for the diaspora, we, I think, have a different um, view and look into this conflict from an objective point of view. Right. So, yeah. Of course, we can't really forget the diaspora outside. I mean, yes. us, us uh, being the diaspora at the moment in the, in, in, uh, the UK, uh, there's been so much happening. It, as a side note, there's been yeah. so much happening in the world this week. Uh, the, uh, the Kim Jong-un and Trump summit in uh, Vietnam and this Indo-Pak conflict, the scare of a nuclear war and the Venezuelan crisis, oh, Brexit. Yes. A and lot is happening this week. A lot has happened this week. True. Uh, so that's the end of uh, the Smart Power podcast with Akash and Tal. Stay tuned and follow us on anchor.fm forward slash the Smart Power podcast or any other podcast platform that you use. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Podbean, Radio Public, and many others. Stay tuned, follow us, and we're sure we're going to come up with an interesting episode next time. Right? Yes, definitely, Akash. Thank you, everyone, for listening. See you next time.